true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I need to begin with just a quick housekeeping item in case you um, are not up to speed on the fact that earlier in the week I mentioned to you that Father Bob Gresser would actually be preaching this morning and that we would be commissioning their family to Malawi today, but some personal circumstances have have changed the timing of their trip. I'm going to let him talk to us more about that during the announcements, and then we will adjust our schedule according to their new timing. Also, as most of you know, today marks the beginning of our annual stewardship campaign, and to clarify, we are not yet talking about the capital campaign for our permanent home, but Becky Powell and others will be speaking about the things that we're doing right here and now at Christ the Redeemer, things that inform our hopes and dreams not only for today, but hopefully also will prepare us for what God has in mind for us in our future. If we take that idea and turn then to our gospel reading, I want to suggest to you that the parable that we heard offers a basic outline for the Christian life, a depiction of the kind of responsive relationship that Jesus wants us to have with him. And yes, we'll see how that ties into stewardship at the end of the message, hopefully. The parable itself is simple enough to understand. Jesus tells us that a man had two sons. He went to the first son and told him to go work in the vineyard. The first son replied that he would not go, but afterward he changed his mind and he went to work. He then went to his other son and said the very same thing. The second son told his father that he would go to work, but he did not. And then Jesus turns to his audience, the chief priests and the elders, and he asked them, which of the two did the will of his father? And of course, they answered the first one. And then Jesus revealed a truth that would have shaken them to their core. He told them that tax collectors and prostitutes would enter the kingdom of God before they did. Did you catch that? The very guardians of the faith themselves might not get into the kingdom of God, and if they did, they would be coming in after prostitutes, after tax collectors. How can that possibly be? Jesus tells them plainly, because of your unbelief. He says, John the Baptist came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they did believe him. And then Jesus kind of puts the nail in the coffin when he says, and even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Now, through this parable, the implied question to everyone is actually very simple and straightforward. Do you want to be a part of the kingdom of God or not? Do you want to be adopted into the family of God or not? Just as being a citizen of an earthly country comes with certain expectations, and just as being a member of any family means living in relationship with one another, 
I want to suggest that these then are the defining characteristics of the kingdom of God and of the family of God. The first, as I've already mentioned, is belief. Jesus told the religious leaders that the prostitutes and the tax collectors would enter the kingdom of God before they did precisely because they believed the message of John the baptizer while the chief priests and elders did not. But notice what Jesus also does. He actually ties belief to behavior. Which of the two sons did the will of his father, Jesus asks his audience. The first one, they replied, the one who actually went out into the field and did the work. Well, there's this saucy little epistle in the New Testament that we call the book of James, and it has a lot to say about the relationship between belief and behavior. What good is it, James says, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? You believe that God is one, you do well, but guess what? Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. But some will say, you have faith and I have works. James says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So you see, James concludes, that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, if you want to discuss the finer points of Reformation soteriology, If you even know what I'm talking about here, see me after class. There's been a lot of debate, a lot of ink, and a lot of blood spilled over these very ideas, but my point is simple this morning. My point is that what we really believe is evidenced by our behavior. What we really believe is evidenced by our behavior. You see, the implicit truth is that when the prostitutes and the tax collectors heard the word of God, they not only believed, but they also repented. In other words, they started to conform their lives to the will of God when they heard the word of God, and the religious leaders, they did not. And I want to suggest to you then, belief and behavior, as they work together, both reveal and speak to the most basic of human needs— This need is common to all of humanity, and it is the need to belong. The need to belong. Let's turn to our original questions, which can also be asked this way. Do you want to belong to the kingdom of God, or don't you? Do you want to belong to the family of God, or not? Consider all the ways that we group ourselves together based on what? Our common beliefs and interests clubs and teams and guilds and associations, and the list is almost endless. Why do we do that? Because we want to participate, because we want to belong. In the same way, God wants to belong to us. He wants us to belong to him, and that's the kind of relationship that he wants to have with us. And so this is exactly why, as the Gospel of John tells us, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came, as John says, that we might receive Him. Think of that. 
God became like us. Why? So that he might know us in our humanity and that we might know him in his divinity. Teaching us and showing us by word and deed that what he made matters to him. That humanity matters to him. That flesh means something to him. That you and I and everyone are of infinite value and worth to him. Every soul ever made everywhere for all time. And in receiving him, John concludes, I think this is the powerful part, we receive the right to become children of God. As other scriptures say, by grace, through faith, not born of the will of the flesh or by the will of man, but born again. In other words, adopted by the Spirit of God that we might be called sons of God and daughters of God. How? By having mercy on our faults. By ministering to our needs. And through that, God calling us his very own. It gets even better. Even bringing us through death itself. Why? Because he wants to be with us forever. Yet even with all of that said, my friends, there's actually still one more element to the Christian life. It is the element of becoming. Woven throughout the writings of the church fathers, there is this consistent strand of theological thought. It's articulated by Clement of Alexandria in this way. He says, The Word of God became man so that you might learn from a man how to become a God. Controversial in some sense, perhaps, but here's what he means. It's not that you or I become God himself or even some kind of demigod in a heavenly pantheon of gods, but that by believing and behaving and belonging and becoming the likeness and the image of God, once stained by sin and subject to evil and death, is now being regenerated, restored to the fullness of of glory by the merits and mercies of Jesus himself. Think about this. His incarnation, his crucifixion, his descent into hell, his resurrection and his ascension now seated at the right hand of glory. It's this great big train of love whereby he is constantly calling us to himself by his spirit, by his word, and through the sacraments to receive him, to embrace him, to love him, to serve him, to become like him, even as he humbled himself to become like us. Why? So that we might know him and enjoy him forever and ever enter the hallelujah chorus. Now, what does all of this have to do with an annual stewardship campaign. I want to suggest to you only everything, only everything. Right now, you know this, we are looking into our future with all of the excitement and anticipation that rightly comes with contemplating all of the possibilities in our permanent home. But for now, for now, I would ask us, to focus on today. Focus on today even as we have faith for tomorrow. 
Entering into this, our annual stewardship campaign with listening ears and willing hearts, as Becky Powell and others share with us during this month of October what God has given us to say about the things that we're doing today that will prepare us for tomorrow. And then the ask is actually very simple. The ask is really, really simple. It's that simply in reply, each and every one of us goes to God in prayer with one very simple question on our hearts. God, what would you have me do today that will help us get to tomorrow? What would you have me do? What would you have my family do today that will help our family get to tomorrow? My friends, for nearly 16 years now, for nearly 16 years together we have prayed and worked and God has brought us to this place at this time with these people for this purpose, to believe, to behave, to belong, and to become like Christ. So that others might see Jesus in us and through us and among us and want him for themselves now and God willing for generations to come. What an incredible thought that the foundation we are laying today by the grace of God might last even until Jesus himself comes back. That's so cool. And God has called us to do it.